It's very secure. Whether or not independence can stand in elections and in what circumstances. You know, it's something that really gives you a stomach ache about politicians. It's seeing them work together. <laughs> <laughs> if the politicians start working together, what can we believe in? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mark, hello. How are you? Very well, it turns out. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know what? You've only got two choices. You can either say fabulous or cuck. So I'm going with the fabulous. All right. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's just go with fabulous. We've got a lot to talk about, of course, as we always do. And just by the way, we haven't mentioned this before. We haven't mentioned this recently, but we love hearing from you. If you want to contact us, you can email both of us on the same email. It's bm for Business Maverick at dailymaverick.co.za. Always interesting to hear your views on what we say and don't say. What would you like to focus on this week, Mark? I want to talk a little bit about this new phenomenon, which is how you make money in a state by decree. Right. So you don't have to justify anything. You just, for example, increase municipal valuations and then you charge rates accordingly. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how the state organs are seem to have very little regard for due process that affects everybody else or money or anything else. I want to talk about some of that. But before we get there, I want to tell me something, Tim. How often do you have a nap? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, a leading question to somebody who is, in fact, employed by an actual boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you have a nap every day? You should have one. Yeah, I'm asking you, do you? I mean, no. there's, no, there's, there's no law against no, yeah. no, I mean, sometimes when I sleep badly, I, I can now nap. If I stay up very late. I can, uh, no. this is part of the problem with working from home, is that it's always a possibility. You could just take a little lie down. How often do you nap? As often as possible. <laughs> well, no, what I find nowadays is if I sit there and read something which doesn't keep my attention, I find myself getting increasingly comfortable until I wake up. Okay. <laughs> and so that's how my naps start and finish. Yeah. But the world champion nappers oh, yes? are none other than the chin strap penguin. Oh, okay. Well, the chin strap penguin doesn't sleep for longer hours at a time and then wake up and have day and night. The, the chin strap penguin has hundreds of naps in an hour of a few seconds each. That's how it lives its life, believe it or not. So it'll doze off for about five or eight seconds and then wake up again. And continuously throughout the day, it has this on-off behavior. How about that? doesn't have a proper sleep, just has lots and lots of little bits of sleep. Oh, that's interesting. If you take the strap off the chin, then they relax more. Yeah, that's a complete, yeah. And then it's complete. <laughs> then, then yeah. yeah. I know some people who do that, but they don't call it napping. They're just like not there all the time. I find increasingly after long dry that a lot of people are napping while they talk. There is. Anyway, so that's, that's my number of the, uh, you know, hundreds of naps in an hour. <laughs> that's extraordinary. But let's talk, you know, I've, more than one of my friends has come to me and said, Mark, they've just valued my house at X million. Right. And there's no ways it's worth X million, but it's quite encouraging. I said, well, hang on a second. Why do you think they're doing that, the municipal valuation? It's because they can charge more rates. Now, there's a process that you can object, but it's a non-trivial effort to go and object, and you have to pay for someone to produce a market valuation and, 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 you know, these little incremental bits of regulatory-driven expenditure by the consumer 
imposed on us willy-nilly without any justification or market defense are starting to creep into the fabric of where our monies go. It's a tax. It's nothing more or less than a tax. When you look at your effective tax rate, you need to start opening your eyes and thinking about everything. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, a, it's, a, it's extraordinary. I think this is one of the things that happens in a country which isn't growing economically or isn't growing strongly enough yeah. economically. Because government has got itself into a pattern now where civil servants expect inflation-linked increase in their salaries, yeah. but government's not getting an inflation-linked increase in its income. <laughs> Anything but. The, can, there's a little bit of a disjoinder here, which you can see it in other things too. You also mentioned this, I think, once before about the fact that government organizations aren't paying each other the debts that they built up against each other. You know, <laughs> this is a big problem. Now, how? Who are the biggest non-taxpayers of uh, the government? Okay. Yes. SOEs and things of this nature. That, no, they don't pay the tax. Or I read today that the sheriff arrived at the ANC headquarters to, to attach some assets and they were like told to get out of there. But we can't do like that. We can't behave like that. And there seems to be this immunity to tax, to debt, to debt settlement, to paying rent, to all of these kinds of things, which, which are, I mean, I can remember the debate about whether we could continue with the, the social distress grant. And the debate wasn't about their virtue or their purpose in life. It was about what percentage of that would have to increase by to fund it. Because right. you're sitting in front of this, you're in charge of government finances, and you're like, we need how much? Okay, we can increase municipal rates, we can increase VAT, we can just increase company taxes. We, can, we don't have to do anything, we just have to make law. And that's fundamentally inappropriate. Yes. Often you read about, the biggest problem, of course, has been the non-payment of ESCOM rates yeah. by municipalities. By municipalities. Yeah. You, you read this and you ask yourself, how did they get into that position? Surely in year one, somebody said, really, we should do something about this. We shouldn't just let it roll it over until next year, because if we do that, we'll have an even bigger problem. And yet now that it's just, it's become sort of like baked into the system that certain municipalities don't pay ESCOM at all, ever. It's a bad habit that gets born out of no consequences for bad behavior. Yeah, yeah. It's about accountability. Yeah. You, you don't pay this month and you feel terrible and you think, oh, God. And then after a year of not paying, you're like, yeah, I'm not going to pay anymore. And the trouble is that the good oaks, and I include myself in the good oaks here. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> I pay what's due. Yeah. And I don't go kind of like, okay, they're not going to cut the whole street off of water and they can't get me. You know, I pay. I pay whatever is due. And taxes and otherwise. And so you have this burden because <laughs> you think you can pass a law which says we're going to increase your municipal rates when you didn't even pay the necessary amount. Who do you think is going to pay for that? <laughs> only, <laughs> only the people who are paying already, okay, yes. are going to pay the increased rate. The guys who aren't paying at all aren't going to start paying the increased rate. You are throttling the spearhead of economic growth in this practice. By definition. Yep. And it's going to come out to roost on us. It's not fun. In some ways it has already, but the thing that you worry about is at what point does it come home to roost in the banking system? How many of these debts, at a certain point, in one way or another, banks do actually face risks here. It doesn't seem like it, but they will. 
with one class of exceptions. When the banks don't feel comfortable, they phone up the money box yes, at yes. National Treasury and they say, we won't lend Transnet any more money unless you guarantee it. Now, the consequence of that is even more dire than the consequence perhaps on a single exposure in a bank because what happens is by that process, the cost of sovereign debt goes up. The cost of government, amount that government has to pay for the increased risk to raise capital. So the whole cost of capital for the country goes up and up and up as the state becomes more and more unjustifiably encumbered. So if the banks say no, how can National Treasury say yes? Okay. Yes. And it's only because it's the never-never. And that's the curse of a guarantee. A guarantee is only required when there's not sufficient evidence of the underlying economics being able to satisfy the equation. Then you go, ah, we don't believe your numbers or what you're going to do with our money, so we need someone else to come and guarantee it for you. Whenever that happens, it's because the fundamental initial transaction is flawed. You're endorsing a flaw. Yes. We saw this very thing this week when government decided that they were going to grant Transnet a 47 billion rand loan. Yeah. Okay. And they were full of the fact that this wasn't a bailout. It wasn't a cash injection. Yeah. It was a loan. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> this is duplicitous language because it is a bailout because in a situation in which you can't pay, but the loan is guaranteed by government, it's going to end up in government's lap. Yeah, and then the other unforeseen or maybe not thought about consequences, which is, yes, an organization borrowing money that it can't afford to borrow. Right. And the reason it can't afford to borrow it is because the income statement won't justify the sufficient security and certainty. And so now you're going to give more burden onto the income statement because you're going to pay interest to the banks who've got this government guarantee or whoever is the source of the loan. And so management time, more and more and more, are focusing on the biggest line in the income statement is cost of debt, okay? And it's rubbish because it's a fundamentally flawed source of capital to borrow money when you ain't got the cash flow to service it. That requires equity funding. It's an equity risk, and the government should be putting capital into the SOEs, not interest. But the trouble is the country ain't got so much cash either. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and so you go round and round and round until you get this, what do they call it, death spiral. It's interesting. Anyway, I don't want to go on about it. I'm depressed enough about it already. I mean, but all of this is another symptom of paying for the sins of the past out of the prospects of the future. And, and, and I, go, I have to focus on this two-pot system, which uh, I believe is going to become a three-pot system, which now on retirement and savings. As from the 1st of September next year, you have a third of your pension goes into savings and two-thirds of it goes into retirement, and you're allowed to draw on the savings component once a year, some amount of money which you, quote-unquote, need. Let me tell you this, my friend. You'll never need that money more yes. than when you're much older. You need it much more then than you do now, okay? While you still have earnings capacity. And, and from an actuarial perspective, every time there's a withdrawal from a pension fund, it results in a withdrawal surplus in the fund because the liability that is being released is higher than the cash amount that's being withdrawn, okay? And so it's a fool. I'm sorry, it's a fool that withdraws from their long-term savings account to fund consumption expenditure or to fund the sins of the past. 
Yes, but Mark, I think you're missing something very important here. I'm sure I am. I hope so. What happens if you die early? Then you would have had a whole bunch of savings that you didn't manage to spend. Isn't that a waste? You could have been gallivanting around the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you see, the good news is if you're a gallivanter and you die early, you don't burden your children with having to support you when you've blown all the cash. And here's the underlying thing is we're all going to live longer than we planned to. Yes, no, this is yeah, so we, there isn't a pension fund that is going to support you for 30 years after retirement, but there's a possibility that you'll live for 20 or 30 years after retirement, and it just isn't going to work in an inflationary environment. So you're creating the never-never, and we live in never-never, kick the can down the road, worry about it tomorrow when I'm not in charge. And all of this stuff is driving me nuts, man, because it's so <laughs> obviously wrong. I know, I know. Okay, let's change the topic to something positive. Yeah, it's for God's sake, changes. HIV. HIV. <laughs> God, I thought you were going to get to something more cheerful. Yeah. Actually, it is good news. Oh, good. I raised this because last Friday was Global AIDS Day. You know, this is like statistics, right? There's always good news and bad news, and there's a dark cloud of the, on the silver lining, and the silver lining has a, itself a dark cloud, etc. But this is how it goes. The first piece of good news is that the number of new HIV infections in 2022 in Eastern and Southern Africa dropped by 57%. Wow. I mean, that is just incredible. Wow. Globally, AIDS infections are falling, and they fell in a single year by 38%. So gradually, the world is getting to grips with AIDS. And really, that is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Yeah, it's a victory for education, I would have thought, in the first instance. Eh? And for science. Yeah. Science can cure or prevent or, pre or deal with the symptoms of AIDS and so on, but it can't stop people contracting AIDS. Okay. Yeah. That requires education and abstinence and all of those kind of good things, which are exactly the things we're not doing with our money. That's a good result because that's an enduring cure. When contracting and, 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 and passing on the disease is down by half, it means people's behavior has changed. Yes, that's right. I mean, and just to, just to state some of the dark cloud and the silver lining, the total burden, the total HIV burden on Eastern and Southern Africa is 20 million people. That's not a small number. Wow. And that's, that's far and away, more than every, the rest of the world put together. You know, it is our kind of problem. But it is good news that something must be heading in the right direction. I mean, it is 2022. These are 22, 22 numbers, right? So I presume that there's some part of that was also sheltering and COVID, and there was a bit, it was a bit more complicated. I think these things are all symptomatic of changed behavior and changed custom and changed yeah, behavior. I, uh, and then obviously there's the medical or the scientific part of which is that the disease itself is less of a death threat than once it was yep. because of antiretrovirals and all of those scientific advances. But the fact that its incidence has gone down is the most encouraging thing about what you've just said in my view. Yeah, yeah. Can I just burden you with one other additional statistic? And that is that it's now almost the fourth most serious disease from the point of view of the number of deaths per year, right? Give me the other three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most infectious deadly disease is TB. About a million people died of TB in 2022. Of course, COVID, this was a COVID year, so there's 1.2 million people died of COVID, and half a million people died of AIDS, just slightly more than the number of people who died of malaria. 
it does show you TB, malaria, still big issues. I presume the most statistics relate to infectious diseases, not generally causes of death like diabetes, heart attack, or all those other. Correct. Here, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are infectious disease deaths. Organ yeah. failure, and those are infectious diseases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means that maybe we can do something about them because. The, longe- the diseases of longevity are going to start uh, winning all of the statistical comparisons, um, I'm afraid to yeah, say. All the, yeah, precisely. And how we manage yeah, yeah. them. How we manage. Have you been following this electoral acting on which the Constitutional Court ruled today? Yes. Do you know it well enough to talk about it? Yes, I know a little bit about it. It's basically whether or not independence can stand in elections and in what circumstances. Yeah, that I'm actually. So, you know, it's something that really gives you a gives you a stomach ache about politicians. It's seeing them work together. <laughs> so that, yeah, if the politicians start working together, what can we believe in? Yes, yeah? yes, yes, exactly. No, no, no. So the situation basically is that this is an incredibly unusual piece of legislation because everybody, all of the political parties are against it. Yeah. But the Constitutional Court said that they had to come up with a way for individuals to stand for elections as independent candidates outside the political party system, right? I think they concluded. So what happened was that they created a piece of legislation which makes it extremely difficult for you to get elected if you're an independent candidate. The first thing is that you can only gather votes from one of the provinces. So you need probably around about 30, 40,000 people to vote for you to make it into parliament. But they only count the votes that are cast in a particular region. Okay. If you get votes outside of that region, what happens to those votes, I ask you, Mark? Yeah, with tears in my eyes, yeah. Yeah, with tears yeah. in my eyes. What happens is they get divided up amongst the other parties. <laughs> no, that can't happen. No, Tim, you're making it up, man. No, that's rubbish. Okay. You've, no, no, you're making I'm it not up. making this up. <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, the Constitutional Court ruled that there is not sufficient evidence proffered to say that a vote for an individual candidate counts less than a vote for a political party. Because somewhere hidden in there, I kind of have to go with the notion that democracy is democracy. Let's not start me on the virtues or otherwise of democracy generally. But if you can get more and more votes, you should have more and more say in the matter. But okay, now it's become provincial. Yes, no, that's right. I mean, and basically, so there are very few people who, who have decided to stand as independents went back to the Constitutional Court and said, does this pass muster? And bad news for them, it does, according to the Constitutional Court. They couldn't prove that it doesn't, actually. I think there's a slight difference. Yes, exactly. And, the, yeah. and they can stand as political parties. Yeah. You can stand as... So now, basically, you're going to have individuals standing as political parties. Yeah, so you can you have a political party of one, so the choice is yours, and not and with it the expense. Correct. Okay, that's all above my pay grade, I think, a little bit. <laughs> anyway, there's, I mean, there are a really remarkable number of political parties contesting this uh, next election. It's just really, it's going to be quite exciting next year. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be always. All right, Mark. Been interesting chat as always. Thank you very much. Yeah. This is our second last one. Next week's our last, and then it's holidays. Holidays, holidays. Don't we all need it? Holidays, yes. Okay. (laughs) Next week. Cool, man. Look after yourself.
This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. For the biggest pod, pod network, network on, on the, the continent. continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.